in those days, there was really n- nobody knew how to grow strawberries organically on any scale in a way that paid all the bills for the strawberries. So I, we took a little piece of land that was isolated from the rest of the fields and created this randomized trial and did organic treatment and conventional treatments right next to each other, then measured everything really carefully. Steve did all the measuring, and I kept track of the numbers on the harvests because we did see some differences in production. But the differences were not anywhere near as much as people expected. And the price differential in the organic price, which had they been sold organically, would have made up for the difference. You know, it's good to have somebody around who's saying, well, you know, I think it'll work, you know, and... Because a lot of people were saying, no, it wouldn't work, you know, because I'd worked in the conventional industry, and they all said, you can grow them all right, but you can't make a living at it. But actually, they looked beautiful, and they tasted great, and I got enough to pay all the bills. Like, so right now, I'm, you know, one half of a percent of the organic strawberries in California. (laughs) And I'm proud of that, you know, I'm I'm just, that's fine, I don't need to be a big one. Welcome to Delicious Revolution, a show about food, culture, and place. I'm Chelsea Wills. This season, we're talking with visionary chefs, gardeners, farmers, organizers, artists, and scientists. These people have shaped the food movement in California. We talk with a diverse group of California's rebel food makers about the ways they do things in their farms, kitchens, and communities that reshape the way we think about food. This show is made by Devin Sampson and Chelsea Wills. Special thanks to the support from Cal Humanities, Food First, and Rebecca Murillo for making this season possible. Inspired by the United Farm Workers' struggle for justice and an emerging environmental movement, Jim Cochran started Swanton Berry Farm in 1983 on four leased acres on the California coast. At the time, everyone said it was impossible to make a living growing organic strawberries, but after some creative experimentation and a collaboration with agroecologist Steve Gleesman and Sean Sweezy at UC Santa Cruz, Swanton became the first certified organic strawberry farm in California. As the organic berry industry boomed in California, Jim kept implementing his vision for a more sustainable agriculture, signing a contract with the United Farm Workers that covers all of his full-time employees and offering them a stock ownership program. He aims to set an example with his commercially viable, socially just, and sustainable farming business. Jim is currently in the process of retiring from Swanton Berry Farm and working on the Food Commons, a model for supporting local food systems with a pilot food hub in Fresno, California. This is Jim Cochran. We're sitting at the farm stand of Swanton Berry Farm. It's an old building that was brought here after World War II to house farm workers from the Bracero program. And there are buildings like this all up and down the coast, uh, wherever there are farms. Exactly, they're all exactly the same. And essentially what they are is old army barracks. In fact, I lived in an army barracks just like this when I was in the army. And so what we've done is we've converted this building into a um, little, what we call a farm stand, where we have products that we grow and things that we make out of the products that we grow. We don't sell anything that we don't grow. And we also have a commercial kitchen here. So we make pies and 
strawberry shortcake and jam and so forth. Everything's with the union labor, both the field production workers and the uh, kitchen people who make the pies and so forth, as are all the delivery people and um, all the people who work at the farmer's market as well. So we have a fully union labor force here. It consists of about, I'd say, 25 permanent full-time, and then probably about 10 part-time people, people who work at the UPIC or do a farmer's market one or two day, days a week. Farmer's market is a really grueling job, and it, it, it really wears people out. And doing two farmer's markets a week is a lot for a person. Jim, when, when I think of Swanton Dairy Farm, I, I think of uh, really good berries and also about kind of leading the way in organics, the ability to produce organic produce in California, and also uh, labor solidarity. So I, I want to talk about all of those, but uh, which of those for you personally, which of those came first? Well, it was really the um, interest in labor issues for farm workers and former sharecroppers. Back in 1970, I was a small part of a small team that organized the first farm worker-owned strawberry farm in California as a cooperative. And that really got me interested in the business. And of course, at those days, everything was all conventional. And what we were trying to do was bring the ability of people who had worked on strawberry farms in ownership of their own farms. And that worked reasonably well, but the cooperative structure was difficult because the fortunes of the co-ops would go up and down tremendously and they were very thinly capitalized and so all it took was a couple bad years and bingo they were gone so what wound up happening is some of the people who worked in the co-ops went on to start their own farms and in fact today some of the people who are farming in in the watsonville area either their parents or themselves or their even their grandparents were involved in one of these co-ops that were basically a phenomenon of the uh, 1970s and very early 1980s. But at that time, I was also interested in organic farming. And as far as I knew, no one in California had actually operated a strawberry farm um, that was organic. Um, there were people who had were vegetable farmers and who had a little bit of strawberries here and there. But there wasn't anybody who was really, uh, you know, what we call a strawberry farm. The way the industry works... Um, in part because strawberries are so complicated to grow successfully. People are, they're just strawberry farmers. And they may grow some other things, but that's what they define themselves as strawberry farmers. So there, at that point, there was no one in the state who had says, well, I'm a strawberry farmer and I grow organically. There was up in um, Washington State, Gene Kahn had Cascadian Farm, and he was growing strawberries organically from, oh God, in the 70s, really a long time ago. And, um, but they were for processing. I think D.L. Coke and some others had, had grown a little bit of strawberries, but it wasn't on the scale that I did. Now, of course, at this point, Dale's got, you know, many times more strawberries than I do. <laughs> and so, do, so does everybody else. But in those days, there was really n nobody knew how to grow strawberries organically on any scale in a way that paid all the bills for the strawberries. Nobody had really figured out how to grow, you know, five or ten or acres of strawberries and actually make a career out of it, make a living out of growing strawberries. And so... That's the point at which I decided to go out on my own and try to figure out how to do that. So I spent about 
five or six years trying out different varieties and different growing methods and so forth, and drawing heavily on the knowledge of organic farming that was really, there was a lot of it here in the Central Coast area. A lot of people knew how to grow, you know, a whole bunch of different crops. And so the commitment to organic came after my commitment to labor issues, because I really felt like the labor issues were not being addressed by the organic movement at all. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to try to just be a good employer for a while. I did that for a number of years. and But then the United Farm Workers began organizing in Watsonville. Their goal was to bring higher labor standards to the strawberry industry in general. So I said, well, you know, maybe I should talk to the union and, and uh, my employees should talk to the union also. And, and maybe we could come up with some sort of a contract that would work for all of us, but would also help raise the discussion of labor issues in the organic world, because I felt that that was really important. I was a small potato person in the organic movement, and I felt like um, it wasn't my job to tell other people what to do with their farming operations of whatever size. And so if I, you know, really believed in all of this stuff, I should just do it myself and just say, well, this is what I believe. This is what I'm going to do. And so I did. I signed a contract with the United Farm Workers in 90, 1998. You know, it was expensive. It costs a lot more. Today, my costs are quite a bit higher than other people's in the business. But I'm still in business and I'm still profitable. I mean, I do have years when it's, when it's not profitable. But I have other years that make up for it. Basically, my goal has been to show that it's possible to pay higher wages, pay all of your state-required things like workers' comp and unemployment and Social Security and so forth, plus pay the union benefits, namely health insurance, dental insurance, pension plan, vacation pay, and holiday pay. So it's quite a substantial package. At this point, it's about a $3 an hour package on top of the wages and so forth. In addition to that, we... Um, provide housing and expensive housing for um, people who work for us. So they're they're able to save money when they work here. Working with the United Farm Workers is um, it's not a normal agribusiness move, and it's also not really a normal, a common organic. I remember one of the first times I had your strawberries was buying them at the Ferry Plaza Market um, at your stand flying the UFW, the red and black UFW flags. So there's a, and at that time, you know, 10 years ago, it felt like a surprising sight in the middle of the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. Well, it was not a popular move among the, either the conventional strawberry world or the organic world. But I felt like, you know, it was my duty to the cause of, you know, improving the working conditions of farm workers that I do that. I just didn't feel right, you know, being concerned about the environment and about, you know, my customers and so forth. And that also being concerned about the people who did the work in the fields. And furthermore, I felt like it was important to be certified in that. And for example, you know, in the organic world, they, they, you know, some people say, well, I'm organic, but I just don't, I'm not certified. Well, you know, we all believe pretty strongly that being certified is very important. And you can't just say, oh, well, I'm organic, because a lot of stuff can slide that isn't truly organic. You never really know. And there's the same thing with 
labor. You can say, oh, well, I do, you know, a good job. We treat everybody like family. And, well, that's that's sort of a good claim and may be true. But, you know, then, of course, it may just be not true. And since there was no interest in the organic community in actually having a um, labor certification program, I felt like the union route was a was a good one. The other good thing about the union thing is that it, you know, it's an outside check on the claims that you make because the union, you know, if you're saying you're doing something when you're not, they're going to talk to you about it. And so it's a way for workers to have a voice. And furthermore, my experience in the co-ops was that the co-ops were terrible employers. In general, the people who worked on the co-op farms had worse working conditions than they did working for some of the large agribusiness farms. And so that really struck me. And people here, they say, oh, co-op, you know, oh, it must be wonderful, you know. No, it was not wonderful for the workers. You see, you have to understand there's, if you have the you have the farmers on their little plot, two or three acre plot of strawberries, they have a voice, right? Because they're a member of the co-op. But the people who work for them have no voice. And so... You know, there's no regulation of how they're paid or whether they're paid correctly and whether there's social securities being paid. All that stuff is just not taken care of. So I felt like that the union was more of a first step. You know, the whole time. And I tell people it's sort of like, are you buying a new car that's got a guarantee that, you know, everything works well? Or are you going to buy an old junk car? And try to keep it going. Well, you know, I felt like having a union contract is expensive, but you get what you pay for. And so people are really totally into working here. And we don't really have quality control issues because everybody, you know, wants to do a good job. And they do do a good job. And it's important for the public to ask other people what they're doing on their farms. Because, I mean, after all, I mean, most organic food is produced by Mexican immigrant farm workers. So I think it's a fair question to ask, well, you know, how are they getting paid? Are are people paying their Social Security, their workers' comp, their unemployment insurance? You know, all that stuff is important. You know, that's what I feel we should, everybody should be doing the right thing, following the rules. And the union labor, I know that Cesar Chavez talked about You know, you figured, well, this is part of the business and, you know, it just, you get over it and um, be careful as you can, you know, but you, it's sort of inevitable that you get some exposures. Now, things are better now than they used to be, actually. Quite a bit better, I think. Everybody's a lot more careful. I mean, everybody in the conventional world is a lot more careful than they used to be, than we used to be back. 35 years ago because people know more about it and I think California farmers are at a much higher standard than people in Mexico or other places so you know California farmers do a good job much better job than we did 30 years ago of um, you know following the rules 
And the rules are difficult to follow. But at any rate, you know, people, the public doesn't really understand how much money it costs to follow all the rules. I mean, there's the fish. That's really expensive for farmers. Water issues. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you, you should see how much money we spend on workers' comp. At least a couple hundred thousand dollars a year on workers' comp. It's a lot of money. <laughs> so there's this point in the 80s, in the early 80s, where, where you are experimenting with organic berries. People are telling you it's not possible to do it on a commercial scale. And then you team up with a researcher who I know really well um, because he was my PhD thesis advisor, Steve Gleesman. And the collaboration that started then has kind of become a legend of what an organic conversion is or what farmer research collaborations can be. So can, can you talk about kind of the early, the early part of that collaboration, how that got started? Gleesman happened to live next door across the field from my strawberry field. And so we started talking and I would go and scratch my head and say, well, I'm trying to figure this out and trying to figure that out. And um, he had some ideas, of course, and um, I'd been reading some things about what perhaps they had done 50 years ago or 100 years ago for soil health in general and and then for insect. I don't know that you can use the word management, but they're all out there. And yeah, it's not management, but it's um, going with the flow somehow in a way that doesn't put you out of business. <laughs> And uh, it was very helpful to have Steve, one, for the scientific reason, but secondly, for to have somebody saying, yeah, come on, you can do it, you know? <laughs> and that's, you know, because, boy, when it was, like, out there on my own, I mean, it was like, you know, it's rough because you've got all your money in this crop, and it could get wiped out. And, you know, sometimes parts of it did. And, you know, I had no subsidies, no government money, nothing. And um, so it was um, scary. You know, it's good to have somebody around who's saying, well, you know, I think it'll work, you know. Because a lot of people were saying, no, it wouldn't work, you know. A lot of people in the industry. Because I still had friends in the industry, you know, because I'd worked in the conventional industry and they all said no you can grow them all right but you can't make a living at it you can't get enough yield or they won't look nice and you know but actually they looked beautiful and they tasted great and i got enough to pay all the bills and so you set up a a small experiment right is it it's a little corner of the field and look at what i was doing from a scientific perspective. So I we took a little piece of land that was isolated from the rest of the fields and um, created this randomized trial and did organic treatment and conventional treatments right next to each other, then measured everything really carefully. Steve did all the measuring, and I kept track of the numbers on the harvest because we kept each plot separate. And, of course, it wasn't really organic because it was right next to a conventional treatment. And it was it was separated by a plastic baffle, but, you know, we didn't sell it as organic. 
But on the other hand, um, we did see some differences in production. But the differences were not anywhere near as much as people expected. And the price differential in the organic price, which had they been sold organically, would have made up for the difference. And so that was a sort of a turning point. Um, we held a field day and, and a bunch of conventional growers came to the field day and saw the what we were doing. And of course, you know, they had better soil and better equipment and more money. And um, some of them picked it up and said, well, gee, you know, if Cochran can do this, I can do this and I can do it even better. And it took a few more years for them to see me actually be in the marketplace and come by the field and see the field and say, well, you know, it seems to be working for him. And so then there was a point at which more people started actually trying a little plot of organic strawberries, uh, the conventional growers. Um, and so now most growers, or, you know, many of them do, you know, like, so right now I'm, you know, one half of a percent of the organic strawberries in California. Wow. Wow. <laughs> And I'm proud of that. You know, I'm just, um, that's fine. I don't need to be a big one. I made a decision a long time ago not to get big, in part because, you know, when I was farming down in Salinas, you know, we had a 200-acre ranch. It was a big operation. And the, sometimes the old-timers would come by and say, oh, God, I remember when I only had 200 acres, and my life was much better than it is now when I've got 8,000 acres, you know, <laughs> and I've got, you know, $20 million line of credit and I, I'm totally stressed all the time and blah, blah, blah. And there's something to be said for just staying small. And then furthermore, I could control quality a lot better. It's tough to do really good quality control on a, on a large operation. It was sort of a personal decision that I made. And so now we lease, oh gosh, about 125 acres or so, maybe 130, but we only have water for almost 100 acres. And about 14 of those acres are in strawberries. You know, one out of seven acres that we have under cultivation is in strawberries. And we rotate other crops around and try not to come back on the same ground for five years. Um, longer would be better but some of the other crops that we grow are are perennials like like bushberries and artichokes and so forth. and what were some of the problems that came up or what were some of the things that you experimented with when you were developing the set of techniques that of organic farming well interestingly enough that particular plot didn't have m many problems um one of the problems that I had was thinking that I understood what was happening, imagining that I understood what was going on in the soil, what was going on with the insects, because there was, no, I didn't understand it, you know, and it was just too complex. So I'd make this and make some intervention and it would screw something else up. And, uh, you know, it just, it was better to take a few steps back and then ju it just aim for general soil nutrition and not try to dose some magic thing 
I remember one time I thought, oh boy, fish meal would be really good. And so I, we dug the holes that we were going to plant in and put some fish meal in the bottom and, and then put, you know, an inch and a half of soil on top and then planted the transplant. And I'll be darned if it didn't burn the plants, you know. And I should have just mixed a little bit in with the compost and left it at that. So that's what I, I just went back to general good pra- good farming practices that have been around for 10,000 years, you know, rotate the crops, um, grow a cover crop when you can. And in, in the old times, they used to add just manure, but we added compost, you know, that's handled in a way that makes it safe. And then I had to, you know, some crops were good in the rotation and other crops weren't. And turns out that the... Um, Nebraska crops were good, um, helped reduce the amount of verticillium in the soil. Um, oddly enough, when I was in Salinas, the farm advisor told me, he says, one thing you'd never do, Jim, is you never plant strawberries after broccoli. Never do that. You know, <laughs> sure enough, now that's exactly what I do. Because, <laughs> see, the problem was with if you had broccoli, even when you after you've harvested the crop and you've incorporated the residue, the broccoli stems are still there to some degree. And um, so then when you fumigate, fumigant doesn't um, penetrate well through wherever there's a stem from a... And um, so you don't get as good a job with the chemicals, you know. Oh, geez. And so anyway, I, I had to relearn everything, you know. <laughs> Doing exactly what the extension agent said not to do. Yeah. Um, so, farmer researcher collaborations are are. I'm I'm a consultant right now for the Food and Agriculture Organization, mm-hmm. and one of the projects that we're doing is like, well, how do we actually how does how do these things work or not work? Mm-hmm. So, what? Um, it's a big question, but what made it work? Well, um, I mean, the fact is that no farmer knows everything. And there's a really big benefit to having basically extension work. And I know when I was farming in Salinas on the, and chemically, I mean, the farm advisors were very helpful. And, but the problem was that there was no farm advisor for organic in those days. I think, I mean, it's really very helpful to have, for a farmer to have sort of a think group of other farmers. And, you know, the way that the system that they've worked out here is a really good one. They, they do a, a bunch of test plots with half a dozen different farms. And we meet a couple times a year and talk about how it's going and sort of share information, even though we're competing with each other. Um, but the benefit is that we, we learn more about plant nutrition and insect ecology because we're collaborating with everybody else. And so it improves the overall performance of our various farms. So it's, you know, it's, it's a little scary to share your secrets, you know, of course you don't share every single secret, but you know, people are seeing what you're doing. All of us who are in the organic movement really believe that it's, it's a good thing that everybody else is doing it, and we don't want to just keep it 
it's just our own little private club that we are the only ones who control, you know. So um, we believe that it's really a good thing that everybody's doing it. And, you know, that's why I'm happy to have the competition. I, I hope so. If we call it an organic movement or a food movement, right? Um, there's uh, you and Steve have a, a recent piece in, and and one of the things that you guys wrote about. Let me see if I can. The, the part of what made it possible was time, trust, flexibility, willingness to share knowledge, values, and belief systems. I think that's that set of things sounds like so much beyond what <laughs> what we talk about when we talk about research normally yeah. um there's like there's like a there's a relationship that had to be built right yeah well it's important because it it um you have to get beyond the natural tendency of competitors to be secretive about what they're doing and so you have to believe in a greater cause than you know you being out, able to outsmart your competitor down the road I think that's an important characteristic of of the organic movement in some ways. There's there's a lot more sharing of information in our movement because it's it's not just about us it, our, as an individual farmer making it. It's about increasing the amount of organic food that's available overall. And it has increased around here i think i think also in the article is like something about a two thousand percent increase in organic production in monterey county and yeah. in santa cruz county but um that's only between 1997 and about 2006 i mean i'm sure it's it's more than that oh yeah it's it's just incredible to see companies that do you know 50 100 million dollars in sales you know just an individual farming operation they do that it's you know, it's quite amazing. <laughs> Have labor relations also changed over that time? Well, I don't know. See, I don't really follow what everybody else is doing. So I don't really know um, what's going on on other people's operations. But I do know that that there are some conventional farms that have great labor practices and do, you know, provide health insurance for their people and that sort of thing. And, um, and, you know, there are other ways where there are organic farms that are doing really a great thing and other ones that are not doing so great. I mean, I don't know any organic farmers who are doing a terrible job, but I wouldn't be surprised if they exist. But unfortunately, I don't know any. <laughs> what else? I've, since clearly growing organic strawberries turned out to be possible what other what other things do you think there are that that people say are impossible now that you suspect might not be well i think the if one of the things that they say is impossible is to pay better wages and to pay the union benefits and i agree that it's difficult to do that in the current system because farmers get beat up by the chain stores that control a lot of the market. So they don't receive enough money for their product to be able to pay for all those things. Might They might in some one year, but they might not the next year. I feel like there really needs to be a different kind of a relationship between the stores and the farmers in order to for the farmers to be able to 
pay for the extra cost. And fortunately, I've had really good relationships with the stores that I sell to. Um, and also at the farmer's market, you, you have a relationship with your customers directly. So that's that's been helpful. But yeah, I understand it, it is difficult and scary for some farmers to think about having a union contract. But, I mean, I'm living proof that it worked out for me. But I think in addition to that, I, I've sort of formed strong relationships with the stores that I supply who support what I'm trying to do. And so that, that's been helpful. And not everybody can do that. So I can see where it's hard, but um, on the other hand, it is possible. And so that's the big thing now. I mean, you know, the organic movement has come a long ways, and it's really off running on its own now. But it's it's the labor issues that are are lagging behind. Maybe this is kind of coming full circle, but that uh, you've kind of introduced some collective ownership to to your business. Can you talk about that? It's not collective ownership. Um, it's a traditional employee stock ownership plan. So we have uh, called an ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan here, and the company contributes cash or stock or both to this trust, which is a legally separate entity. And it's um, it's actually a retirement program. And so it owns stock in the company. It owns about a sixth of the stock in the company right now. And it has cash. It doesn't have investments in stock other than the company's stock at the moment, but it, it may wind up doing that in the future, although I think that investing in the company's safer than the stock market. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of 11,000 companies in the United States where employees own part or all of the business. So like UPS is an ESOP, Southwest Airlines, a lot of big companies have, even Cargill is 40% owned by its employees. Yeah, yeah. So th- that was a shock to me. They have something like 160,000 employees all over the world. And, you know, they own 40% of the company, believe it or not. But there isn't anybody in, a- in agriculture. Cargill's not really a uh, farming company. It's a marketing company. So we are the only actual farm that has an ESOP. It's expensive to maintain. It costs about $20,000 a year to just to administer it. It's a commitment, but I believe in it. You know, It's sort of an alternative to the co-op model. If you want to be an independent farmer, you go be an independent farmer. If you want to be part of a cooperative, you go join a co-op. If you want to have a little stake in the ownership and hopefully a, a decent place to work, then you come and work here. So we don't promise to be everything to everybody. Um, we're more of a traditionally managed business, which a lot of workers prefer. They don't want to have somebody asking them stuff all the time. You know, what do we do about this? What do we do about that? They don't want to take the responsibility for it. But on the other hand, we try to do, be what you might call enlightened managers where, you know, you ask people who are in the field, what do they think about this? What do they think about that? A lot of, almost all the interactions that I have with people is, what do you think about this or that? What do you think about the watering we're doing? And Do you think that these 
strawberries are going to be overripe by Monday. What do you think? We should we pick them today or wait until Monday? Or, you know, is this the right tractor implement, do you think, that we're using? And that sort of thing. And people have opinions about that. And so they like being asked about those things because, you know, we don't always do what it is that they recommend, but it's part of the mix and their opinion counts. I mean, they, they, and you know, if they feel like it's not a good idea to do something somewhere, they say, no, that's, hey, Jim, that's, this is not a good idea. You know, we should do it the other way around, you know, which is, you know, it's nothing new in the world of management. I mean, you know, a lot of companies work that way. So much of farming or what I've heard from a, a lot of farmers that I've worked with is, is it's that close observation that, yeah. that, that matters. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you you just have to pay attention. I mean, and that you, know, you just look at stuff. I mean, I I am not a scientist, you know, and I can I just look at a plant and I say, oh, that plant's not happy. What 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 am I doing wrong there? And so it is. It's about paying attention. So now I I'm sort of semi-retired. I have two managers, one in production and one in farm sales, and um, I just check in every day, look at all the fields and talk to people in the field and in the store and farmer's market people and customers, and which reminds me I need to go out and get some peas later today. So, you know, my job at this point is to be more of a mentor because I'm 68, you know, I, I can't do this same physical stuff that I could. After I was 60, I sort of, that was the point where I couldn't do stuff so much anymore. Because you get sort of beat up doing this. Yeah, and I know you're also thinking about changing a bigger food system at the same time as a part of your retirement. I know I've heard you talk about regional food hubs and about labor politics. Um, what, where are you putting your energy in terms of that right now? Well, there... What I'm doing is trying to do a similar thing that I did with at the farm is actually um, doing it ourselves rather than trying to convince other people that they should change their what they're doing and come along and join us and we'll all work together. And so, no, no, it's more like we'll create something, and um, if people like it, they'll come to it. You know. And what are you creating? Well, we're trying to create a um, vertically integrated um, system over in Fresno, where, which grows food, processes it, distributes it, so sells some of it, but mostly retails it. So um, it's that's what we do here at the farm. It's we we're completely inter- vertically integrated. We do everything, soup to nuts. In fact, I think some large percentage of our sales are direct to the public retail it's like 75 percent maybe you know so that's a lot that's the way but way i'm able to afford to pay for the benefits because you know we get the full retail price so that's been an important part of the, of the business model and so that's what what i am been saying about um Oh, some kids are coming in with some strawberries that they picked. Yeah. <laughs> Showing Grandma and Grandpa. There. Grandma and Grandpa are appropriately thrilled. 
they're contributing to that direct sale. I think I will too with some uh, strawberry shortcake. And but thanks so much for talking, Jim. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for doing what you're doing because I think it's super important that that people um, think about the full range of things that are involved in farming, and it's you know there's a lot a lot of people things that happen in farming. Thanks so much. Delicious Revolution is a show about food, culture, and place. Made by Devin Sampson and me, Chelsea Wills. You can subscribe to Delicious Revolution on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. And you can learn more at deliciousrevolutionshow.com. There we've got pictures and notes all about the interviews, and you can sign up for our monthly email. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, too. This season of Delicious Revolution was made possible with the support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhum.org. This season is a collaboration with Food First, and a special thanks to Rebecca Murillo, our intern. Mm-hmm.